maybe he bought a different bunny at a shop that had the map in it. Maybe the map was in a bunny and then the jewel was hidden with a bunny and he just happened to win it like Willy Wonka's golden ticket or something. Hey guys, I'm Alon. And I'm David. Welcome to I Finally Watched, where we talk about movies that at least one of us has never seen before. And today uh, we have a very special double feature. I finally watched Romancing the Stone and The Jewel of the Nile. So Romancing the Stone is like a romantic adventure movie shot in 1984, starring Kathleen Turner and Michael Douglas. And it's basically, I like to compare it to like Indiana Jones, but it's a romantic comedy. I mean, can you, can you think of a, like a, a better kind of breakdown than that? No, and it's funny, I was reading that a lot of people, a lot of critics said that this was just a ripoff of Indiana Jones, but this was actually written like six years before Indiana Jones was released. It just didn't get made until way after. Well, what I really like about this kind of series of films is that at least the first one, Romancing the Stone, has like a, a female lead. Um, and that's kind of like, it's not overshadowed by Michael Douglas and his character, but I mean, we'll, we'll get into like the nitty gritty of it, but doesn't it feel like it's really her movie in the beginning, um, and kind of the end, but a huge like middle majority of the movie is really, it's, it's Michael Douglas's film. I, I mean, she is the main character of both of them, I would say. Um, the first one, definitely. But Jewel of the Nile, you know, when we were talking about this, you were telling me how you, when you started Jewel of the Nile again for your rewatch, that you were like, oh, yeah, Michael Douglas, this is kind of the main character in the second one. But really, they share a lot of screen time in that one, too. Um, but my one big takeaway from this movie is the the way they developed her character. She kind of had a big arc over both the movies of developing from this somewhat lonely cat lady who, you know, can't find romance and is looking for a guy that matches Jesse from her novels and has, you know, it would be absurd for her to leave the country on an adventure to, in the second movie, you know, pretty much holding her own as far as the the action part of it. So I think both movies are, are her movies. So I, I disagree with you on that um, because although I do feel like the first one um, or as we come into the second movie, she has developed this character of herself where she can hold her own. Um, and she is a bit more adventurous, I would say, so that would be like her character arc from, from the first going into the second. And there's a, there's a pivotal scene at the end of the first movie where I'm just going to get right into it, but she's kind of wrestling with the, with the main antagonist. Um, he pulls a knife on her and they're kind of like, she's dodging and, and, and wrestling about. And Michael Douglas you know, he kind of has this arc where he's going for the treasure and he has to decide, well, is he going to help this this woman that he's in love with or is he going to go for the gold? Not the literal gold, but, you know, figuratively. Green. Yeah, the go, for, go for the green. And um, he chooses to go and help her. And that, you know, you see his arc there. 
But by the time that he scales the wall and grabs the gun and gets to her, she's already completely defeated the antagonist. And so in that sense, I don't have, you know, she, like you said, she went from lonely cat lady to her own like adventure hero. But in the second movie, I feel like you're mainly focused on, on Jack Colton's character to, you know, when he realizes that the love of his life is, is an imminent danger. He, you know, that's his adventure. That's his arc. Even though I don't feel like they have like a, an overwhelming change to who they are um, by the end of that film, because yeah, they're in love and I guess they're having kind of a, like a, a lull in their relationship. Um, And then by the end of the second film, they want to get married or they do, they do get married but I digress. So in Romancing the Stone, um, I feel like it is really her movie. However, uh, because Michael Douglas is a charismatic guy, uh, he, you know, you, you put a lot of focus on him throughout. But even in the second movie, you know, once she gets to Omar's palace, um, she quickly kind of discovers that things aren't what they seem. And then she uh, meets the Jewel of the Nile. And then she kind of has a whole storyline with that. So if, if you say that the first movie is kind of her movie and he's more of a side character, I would agree. But I think in the second one, at least they sort of share the screen time. Well, we'll we'll just we'll just agree to disagree with with that. Um, uh, overall, what what did you think of the two films? Let's let's start with *Romancing the Stone* and kind of talk about the the plot points in that film. I had a lot of questions about the plot points in *Romancing the Stone*. Okay. Um, first, how is she using her book to solve mysteries in a cave? About oh statues in my book i wrote if you break a statue open that's where the treasure's hidden and that just happens to work well it makes sense in the second one when it when it when it works there um i agree with you the first one is just totally like deus ex machina where they're kind of stuck in these situations and she's like well the her uh the hero in in my novel would do this and then so that you know they proceed to do that and it just works out for them um, I kind of, I kind of love it though. Like, I, I feel like that's really entertaining. They didn't go into the legend or the myth behind this treasure that the bunny statue that they break open, open looks like something I could buy at Walmart, you know, today. <laughs> so I'm like, it, I guess this isn't a very old myth. This is like a new age like this was buried like three years ago and just happens to have a jewel in it. I never really thought about it. I just kind of accepted it as face value because you're right, because they, they bring it up out of the, the thing. And it's like this, this bunny statue, you, you know, your grandmother sets up on Easter. And, and it's not even like, you know, when you, uh, not, not, Damn it, not architects. Um, 
archaeologists, archaeologists, even when they dig up like ancient statues, they're like brown or bronze and it's like decrepit. No, but this one is, this one is like a freaking Easter bunny. And then it has like a little bit of paint chipped off of it. Um, yeah. Also like no backstory on Zolo. He is called a butcher by, I think it was Ira who called him the butcher, but then also called him Dr. Zolo of like minister of antiquities. But then he's also seems to be sort of like a, a policeman of some sort. But then he also seems to be like just an <laughs> evil guy. Yeah. And we have like no backstory what's on him whatsoever, but he also has the backing to be able to just fly to New York to stake out this woman that might have this map. Also, another thing is, is in the beginning of the movie, there's like a, a tenant of her in, in her apartment that questions Zolo, uh, his presence there. And it shows him stabbing and presumably killing him. But you, you hear nothing of like how he got rid of the body or if there was ever a body to be found. That was just kind of brushed under the rug. I, honestly, in a way, you kind of just have to take this like, okay, it happened, whatever, and then just move on, or you, you drive yourself insane on like the amount of plot holes in this film. How did Elaine's husband find the map? I Edward, don't really understand Eduardo? that. Eduardo? I don't know his name. Eduardo? I think, I think it's Eduardo. Yeah. Um, I guess he came upon this- it. Like... Maybe he bought a different bunny at a shop that had the map in it. Maybe the map was in a bunny and then the jewel was hidden with a bunny and he just happened to win it like Willy Wonka's golden ticket or something. No, like, yeah, it is kind of a zany plot and has a bunch of plot holes and, and it, the, the, you could cut it with a knife on how thick the melodrama is at the beginning of this film where she's like, oh, I just finished my novel. And she's like with her cat who she names Romeo because of course it's a cat named Romeo and she's a romantic romantic novelist. And so she like gives him a whole can of tuna and puts like a, a cilantro on top and she's drinking wine and her cat is eating the tuna and then she finishes her wine and just casually throws her glass in the fireplace. And it's like, it's just kind of this like really soap opera kind of beginning, which is odd for me because it doesn't fit the rest of the movie at all. Right. Well, in the, the beginning of both movies start with kind of an excerpt acted out from her book. And when I was watching it with my wife, after the Romancing the Stone excerpt was done where it's in the Wild West and you see this very scantily clad woman and then she's able to free herself and kill this bad guy. Um, my wife was like, if the rest of the movie was like that, I would not watch this. <laughs> Cause she was just like, it's so weird. I don't understand what's going on. And yeah. then obviously it gets better from there. It's also, it's also kind of interesting too, that you're almost a half an hour into the movie before Michael Douglas even makes it in. And he's well, that's probably, what, that's what I'm saying. It, it's, it's totally her film. You know, she saves herself. She, she don't need no man, I guess, is like kind of the, the whole, well, 
the whole point of the film is she has this like perfect man written in her in her novels that she's built up to like on a pedestal and then when he presumably shows up as michael douglas he's not a gentleman he's rude he's crude he doesn't give a shit about her he does it for the money but he kind of fits that mold in all the other ways like he's a a gun toting adventurer who saves her from another like gun toting bad guy and then they kind of grow through each movie or through the first movie into kind of being like fitting each other's perfect match, I guess. What I think is interesting about their development as a couple and what I was kind of getting to is like the movies center a lot around their relationship. But in the first movie, you're in half an hour in before you even see Michael Douglas. The, the beginning part almost just seems like kind of exposition setting up the rest of the movie um, where they work together. Uh, and throughout both films up until the very end, not the very end, maybe like two thirds of the way through the, the second movie, they're kind of a very horrible couple. Um, right. It's funny in the beginning, she is telling him when they're in the scene where they're in the airplane, she's giving him all the reasons why he's a horrible person and not someone she could be with. And then he murders a snake and saves her life. And within a couple minutes, she's just, you can tell from the way she's looking at him completely into him mm-hmm. and like almost in love with them, which is like, I guess they had to move the plot along quick, but I thought it was, it was very like such a romantic comedy, like, you know, trope plot device to just have that come really, really quickly. A lot of the films that we have been talking about are, I won't say like completely serious, but you know, they, they fall in, in a level of realism. Um, I think for this one, at least I did was kind of just switch your brain off from that and just kind of like take it of what kind of film it is. I liked it as an adventure rom-com. I thought that it brought a lot to kind of each genre. It brought a lot of action for the adventure part of it. And it brought a lot of romance for, for that part of it. And I thought it was like freaking funny. Um, I love, absolutely loved uh, Danny DeVito in it. I thought he was just (laughs) so freaking funny. A couple of his lines did not age very well. Maybe you missed them, but there are a couple, maybe call them slurs or things he said that um, wouldn't get away with saying today. So they're kind of of the time of this movie in the mid 80s where you wouldn't maybe get in tr- as much trouble. So oh, he is, wasn't he, didn't he call his cousin gay, but not like, he didn't say it like that. I said Maricone, which I believe means gay. That's not the part I'm talking about. And I don't really want to, give examples of the things he said. What I also really found funny is that obviously they decided they need to make a second. Apparently there was going to be a third at one point, but they needed to make a second and DeVito had to be in it. And it makes absolutely no sense how he escapes prison and finds in 1985, finds uh, Jack Colton and um, Joan Wilder. Joan Wilder. They say her name so many times in the first movie and I still... But there's no way he finds both of them 
<laughs> just in this like, you know, Italian coast town, and yet somehow he's able to, which I thought was really funny at the same time. You're right. Like I don't I enjoyed both movies. They're very they're very entertaining. But what I also find entertaining about watching them, and especially upon rewatching them, is looking at all the ridiculous plot holes and like ridiculous way things work out. Because I think that's just as fun. Like these movies, this was like kind of silly action romantic comedy movies in the 80s. And -hmm. so I don't take them seriously. And it's not like I'm like, oh, these are bad movies because I'm comparing them to something else. But I think it is fun to look at the ridiculousness of them and point it out and laugh at it. No, definitely. Definitely. I just don't want you to just be too critical on on it that i not that i thought you were i just didn't want you huh just just remember john carter Ugh. remember the alamo okay the difference between this and john carter is that the okay first of all this made money and second of all this had a sequel and third of all um it wasn't boring the thing about john carter was that it was so boring alan alan well, we're not talking about John Carter in this. You brought it up. The thing I enjoyed about both films, the, the structure of both films to me is, is exactly the same as far as you have the two leads that are a couple and they, you know, they become a couple in the first one. They are a couple that's on the rocks in the second one. There's this bad guy. Yep. And there's kind of these secondary bad guys. I mean, in the first one, they're definitely bad guys, DeVito and his cousin Ira. In the, in the second one, they have this band of people that are trying to find the jewel, and you don't really know what their purposes are, but, you know, they stab people. But the, the thing I liked about it is in both films, you have this kind of comic relief zany character. Um, in the first one, it's Juan, who is a fan of Joan Wilder's books. And when he finds out that it's her, like, brings her into his house. And then when offers, you know, when they ask to borrow his car, he's like, I don't have a car. And then you see his truck barrel through his garage door, which doesn't make any sense because they don't know that the army's there or uh, Zolo and his crew's there. But, and then the whole ride with him through the forest and jumping over the river. But that same character is basically in The Jewel of the Nile in The Jewel, the guy who is The Jewel of the Nile. And I actually liked his character a little more. He's really funny, especially the scene where uh, Joan and uh, Colton are arguing. And he's like, oh, a debate. I love debates. All right, you go. And then he like pauses him. He's like, no, no, it's her turn now. <laughs> you, you know what's so interesting about that character, Jewel, is um, his, his name is Avner the Eccentric. And he's like a professional clown. He, he, this is his only movie credit. And he usually does like juggling and miming. And I think now since he's older, he teaches like professional clowning. I mean, that, that all makes sense too, just because of the way he acted. I mean, he acted very much like he was just a zany, off the wall character. His, his dialogue like purposely didn't match up with really what was happening. You know, he would see a scenario and interpret it in a completely different way. Like I'm saying, like they're having an argument. He's like, oh, it's a debate. We're going to get to an answer. Um, so yeah, that's, a, that's a kind of interesting. This is his only role and that's, you know, what he did for a living. 
Yeah. And you can see that in just the way he moves and stuff. Um, speaking of the way he moves, <laughs> did you like that CGI fire that he walked out of? It was, it was great. Uh, <laughs> especially like in the end when he made it all the way through the fire and it's just a green screen of fire behind him. Mm-hmm. Like that part was very, very well done. You um, you know you know what was so interesting about that scene with the basically what they did is that they had like the stage actually is on fire, uh, controlled of course, and it looks like they green screened him in the the fire, and it's kind of odd because what they would have done like nowadays, obviously with greater finesse would be that they would have had him and then green screen the fire in. And it's curious on, I guess, back then they couldn't make convincing CGI fire, so they had to do it that way. But I've never seen it where you green screen like a whole person in a scenario. I've always seen it the other way around. Yeah, that's interesting. That's, I mean, you know, given the the technological limitations of the time, I guess you had to do what you had to do to make it as real as possible. And that's like, that's the type of thing that I will obviously give a pass on. And it's like, you know, it, it, it looked fine to me. Yeah. For, for the, you know, for the time. Um, I will, I will say, I know that I, I said that I have seen both of these and you know, of course, this got you to watch both of them uh, with me again. But I guess I was so young that I just didn't quite realize, but I've only seen Jewel of the Nile. And so technically, this is kind of an I finally watched Romancing the Stone. And it's weird because I've only seen the sequel. But yeah. Which one did you like better? I, I like Jewel, Jewel of the Nile. Yeah, I was. I said the same thing to my wife that I I was enjoying Jewel of the Nile better. Um, but then I rewatched Romancing the Stone, and they're both they're both really good. No, they're both um, really they're both really solid movies, and it might just be my nostalgia liking the one I've seen previously more. But I think the I guess because I'm a guy, so I look out for like the more actiony scenes, and I feel like Jewel of the Nile really delivers on that aspect. What I what I like too is. It, these are two movies that are really good to watch together. They're, you know, they're an hour and 45 minutes each. So it's, it's a long watch if you do them back to back, but very doable. And the story, I think, goes very well together. And especially, I, you know, I brought this up earlier, the, the buildup of Joan's character throughout both movies. Um, in the end of Romancing the Stone, I thought it was a little crazy her and Jack get stuck on opposite sides of a river and he's like, I'll meet you in Cartagena, which as we've been told in the movie is on the opposite side of Colombia. And the, I, I thought it was crazy. <laughs> the idea that she was just going to figure out how to get to Cartagena from where they were. But it, it continues in the second movie when she goes to Omar's palace and she's kind of trying to figure out what's going on. She starts scaling the walls and it's like the Joan Wilder of the first hour of romancing the stone would be incapable of doing that so the development of her in the second movie i thought was really cool no yeah definitely and i think the comedy in the in the second movie uh is a lot like cleaner 
um, the jokes seem to land better. Um, one of my favorite gags of the whole, I guess like both movies, is in the very beginning of Jewel of the Nile when um, Danny DeVito like pops out of like a, a shipping crate um, and like confronts Michael Douglas and he's like, yeah, I was, I've been, I, you know, I've, I've had horrible things done to me in, in prison and it's all because of you and yada, yada, yada. And then some guy was like, oh, Joan Wilder has been um, uh, kidnapped, you know, and you, I need your help to, to get the Jewel of the Nile back. And, you know, the whole plan was hatched right then and there. And Michael Douglas goes, I don't want anything to do with this. I don't want anything to do with that broad. I just want to go on my boat and go to Greece. And it's, he, the camera is positioned so that he's in the foreground and you can see his boat in the background. And as soon as he says that, the boat just blows up, huge, like loud explosion. And Michael Douglas doesn't even turn around. And he's like, they, they blew up my boat. I, I, it's, it was just so funny to me. That scene is like, you could kind of tell what was going to happen. I mean, they allude to it because they put this, uh, what looked like a bomb on his boat kind of in the opening credits. Mm -hmm. um, and the way that scene is set up, you like know it's going to happen. It's one of those jokes you can see from like a mile away, but it is still really funny. I would imagine maybe in the 80s, you may not have seen it coming, but it, I mean, it was, it was fairly obvious. The, the thing I thought when that scene was happening and, and uh, rewatching a little bit of it was, why did Omar Omar need to blow up the boat? Like it's one of those things that's like the the thing an evil guy does, but it doesn't make any sense. Oh, because he wanted because, to like, kill him. He wanted to kill him. But why did he want to kill him? Because he invited him to the palace along with Joan. So if he had said yes, he would just be at the palace and he can't really kill him because at that point he's trying to put on this facade for Joan. Um and when he then says I guess, no, then I guess he, the, hold, on, hold on, hold on. When he says no, he's just, uh, you know, my wife and I were talking about like when they, when Joan and him split up, it's like in the eighties, like, how would you find each other? Like, if you know your address, that's fine. And he could leave like a, a voicemail on her answering machine, but she like can't get to that unless she goes back to New York to check it. So it's like, it would be really hard for them to find each other. So Jack Colton is out of the picture and Omar has Joan where he wants her. It makes no sense to blow up his boat. It's just almost kind of vindictive. And then because it doesn't work, you know, he's there in the end to help thwart you. So Omar got what he deserved, I guess. Well, yeah, I mean, he's the villain. So usually in these films, the, the villain gets... Uh, gets what's coming to them but you know it's funny that you you say that but if you remember in the movie they allude to um not being able to communicate with each other he's like oh if you go there i guess i'll send you a postcard from greece and she's like or vice versa but one of them's like to where what what address you know so they they were aware that <clears throat> uh they were aware that they couldn't communicate to each other. But yeah, I think you're right. I mean, there's no real reason to kill Jack at that point of the film. Uh, but it's just probably a, a, just to cement to the audience, like, yeah, he's a, he's a bad guy. And also tell Jack, like, now Jack has like a hand in the game, right? Like, oh, you took my boat. And that's later kind of called back to when he blows up the plane 
Um, I want to talk about that plane scene because it reminded me a lot of Indiana Jones's plane scene in the second one where he also commandeers one of the planes and he drives it around without flying it. Um, I, I love it. I think it, I thought it was like one of the best action scenes in Jewel of the Nile. And um, it's definitely one of my favorite scenes out of both of those movies. Well, it's also just like, it's an action scene, but it's also just very comedic because they like can't figure out how really to work it. And, you know, they sort of like get lucky and they like hit the panels and are able to uh, shoot a, uh, a rocket to blow away through to get out of the city. And then after they get out, you know, the wings are gone. Even if the wings weren't gone, they weren't going to be able to figure out how to fly it. So the fact that you're just driving this <laughs> fighter jet as a plane through the desert was, yeah. And I think it was more, more comedy than action, but. Well, no, because it was, I think it was both. And, and like, you, it was funny, but I just, I loved it because it, I felt like it hit the nail on the head on both comedic and actions uh, really balanced and really well. One thing I noticed that they did a little bit though underdevelop like Jack Colton's like desire for the the jewel in the first one a little bit like right. whether like was he really going to double cross her like they they show you that he was but at the same time it's like are you talking about the first one or Jewel of the Nile I said I said in the first one Yeah but then you said the jewel and that confused me <laughs> There's a jewel in both of them Yes. But in the first one, they show him, you know, putting back the map once she agrees to go get it. And then they uh, they have Danny DeVito accuse him of just using her to get the jewel. But then she, she seems to get over that very quickly. So, Well, one of the funny, funny kind of dated aspects of this is everywhere he goes, he wants a wants a Xerox machine so that I, I assume that he could uh, make a copy of the map and take it for himself. And I was just thinking nowadays how that would happen is he would just take a picture of it with his phone and be out of there before he could make any sort of like romantic connection with the character, you know? Yeah. I, there's, there's a ton of those moments where like this could have been solved with like a, um, she would have had like a sat phone, you know, cause she's a famous author. Um, I want to talk about the ending to Jewel of the Nile. And I, I know we touched on this a little earlier, but when they both get off the train and it kind of cuts to Omar has captured Jack and Joan and they have them hung up in like a really elaborate rope contraption over like an endless pit. And on one end, the rope is going to snap because the rats are going to eat through it. And then on the other end, the rope is going to snap because acid is slowly dripping on it, also eating through it. And Jack says, like, what kind of sick creep would ever think of something like this? And, and Joan just looks at him and he, she's like, this is chapter 17 of the book I wrote. And he's like, oh. <laughs> and then you have... One thing I love and the reason I probably like the second one more than the first is the relationship between Danny DeVito and Jack Colton, uh, Michael Douglas. Yeah. Because they have this sort of like we're working together but not really relationship that throughout. And I like in the end when he comes in and Danny DeVito is finally like, I, I have all the power. Like, I want this jewel. And then, of course, he screws it up and like saves them by <laughs> tripping a ladder <laughs> over the hole and catching them right at the exact moment. Right. 
Um, but yeah, I think, like I said, it made no sense for Danny DeVito to be in the second movie, but you obviously needed Danny DeVito to be in this second movie. I think at any point where the movie got a little boring or tedious, it's when Danny DeVito split off from Jack and uh, went like five scenes with that, with that African tribe. Um, I was like, can, can he join back up with the other two main characters? Cause of course I want the comedic onslaught to ensue. So, you know, this, this has such a nice blend of comedy, romance, action. I feel like the rewatchability of something like this is high. At least, you know, it gives me like Indiana Jones vibes and I can just keep watching Indiana Jones over and over again. Um, do you feel the same way or different? I feel different. Um, I enjoy these movies uh, and I'm glad I watched them. They're very, they're very dated. Um, I think part of the reason you enjoy them is you thought you had seen both of them as a child, but <laughs> at the very least you saw one of them as a child. And so you have this nostalgic relationship to the characters. And I mean, you saw the better one as a child. So I, I don't really have that. And so watching it fresh in 2020, um, I, I'm glad I watched them and I enjoyed watching them, but I wouldn't turn it off if someone else wanted to watch it, but it's not something I would seek out to watch again. Well, look, as long as we can both agree that Jewel Denial is the better one, I think we'll be fine. Well, I'm glad we solved that. All right. Well, thanks for listening to another episode of I Finally Watched. I'm Alon. And I'm David. And I finally watched Romancing the Stone and The Jewel of the Nile. Bye.